Oh, my son just came in. Hey, Cooper, it's you and I again. Do you remember me? Mama. Mama. <laughs> Maybe I have some qualities in common with Mama. Marshall, I say, come with Mama. Is he mistaking me for Mama? No, Marshall says Marshall does something with Mama. What does Marshall do with Mama? Boy, this is getting dangerous. Wow. I have never been the mailman nor the milkman there. <laughs> Wait, what? Bye, and good seeing you. Uh, what a cutie. <laughs> he is. We're ready to go with another Draftsman podcast on this beautiful June day in SoCal. Tell the viewers, the listeners, what Draftsman podcast means. Oh, the Draftsman podcast is a conversation between Marshall Vandruff. That's me. And Stan Prokopenko. That's him. And we talk about all things having to do with being artists and making one's living in the arts. Granted that a person wants to do that. We talk about stuff that may help. If they don't want to make a living off of it, should they just stop listening? No, I, I think that <laughs> if you want to listen to people who take it seriously, that you want to do it for the joy of it and the fun of it and not for money, there's a lot in here for you too. And if they're not artists, should they still listen to it? No. no yeah, they should. We need <laughs> no. the listens. We need the numbers, Marshall. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. What if they're just here for the entertainment of our humor? Yeah. And the... <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> and the pleasure of hearing your voice. If that's the case, their standards are very, very low. But it's, it might be good to have your standards low and then gradually lift them up. You'll outgrow this podcast. That inevitably happens. I didn't know you were going to start insulting our audience that quickly. No, I was not insulting our, our audience. You said that their standards are low. If anybody comes to this podcast for our humor, I think I think some do, Marshall. I think some do, and you're insulting them. <laughs> yeah, going out to the dry desert <laughs> to pick up those buckets of. I'm just gonna let's just change the subject. Yeah, mm. there you go. <laughs> mm. oh, off to a great start today. I'm glad that we're, we, we started this by, by talking to our audience because this whole conversation, this whole episode is going to be about us talking to our audience. Yeah, well, it's our high standard of humor that keeps people coming back. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, you really want to make this a good one. You, you just, let's just break all the rules. Let, let's insult the audience and let's, let's just go right into eating <laughs> right afterwards. <laughs> What's next? What are you going to do next, Marshall? You stay tuned to find out. <laughs> First sip of coffee for the day. Oh, that's right. This is this is the episode of the day that you start drinking coffee. Hey, but you know, we, we did one episode where you spent six minutes on talking about coffee. You explained to me, <laughs> yeah. you and Sean explained <laughs> yeah. to me a year ago that when I was so bent out of shape of this podcast is so filled with fluff and you guys said- <laughs> That it's uh, a buddy simulator. Sean said that. 
so yeah, I can think sipping coffee and talking about coffee and, and simulating buddiness. I also don't agree with you that it's filled with fluff. Well, it's because Charlie cuts out most of it. There's still an hour of non-fluff left over after he cuts it. Cuts it up, so. Well, it remains to be seen whether what we just said will be left in. <laughs> yes. We'll see. And they will never know. If it's not left in, yeah. It's gone. Because there will be something. There will be something before we yeah. said this, but they, it w- they won't know if something was cut out or not. What do you want to do today? <laughs> I want to answer people's questions because there's a lot of them. Oh, well, then let's get to it. And we keep running out of time in all our episodes and we can't throw in a voicemail question at the end of our episodes anymore because all our episodes go over an hour now. Let's take care of those voicemails then. We care so much about our topics. We just can't stop talking. Okay, Marshall. I'm going to play it. Yeah. I'm ready. Hi, Marshall and Stan. My name is Ian White. Uh, I've been an artist professionally for about 17 years as a tattoo artist. About six years ago, finally broke the seal and started oil painting and fell in love with it. Uh, those early days, I took in a lot of online instruction and felt like it really helped me grow. And then once I really started putting paint to canvas frequently, uh, I was able to start selling on a regular basis and, and just kept painting and painting and painting and painting. And my question is, trying to find that balance of input and output I found to be difficult. And I don't want to fall victim to a plateau of skill, and I'm curious of your opinion on on whether just painting and painting often is enough to build that, or if there's a certain amount of time that I should look at myself and maybe reach out for uh, critique or instruction or just putting the brush down for a little bit and reevaluating uh, myself in that. Uh, any Any advice you might have? on that balance of input and output would be great. Thank you very much for all you guys do. Bye. I think it is input output. This is one thing that I've kind of wondered about as well. I don't know if I have an like a the correct answer. What about you? Do you have the correct answer? No, I want to hear what you say first. It depends. <laughs> We're back on that boat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, actually we, um well we just had an episode on the war of the war of art where we did that review of the book and a lot of that talks about resistance and i feel like input could be a form of resistance it could be there as an excuse for not outputting for not sitting down to create and you have to be the judge of it of where that balance is for you. How much input do I need until the amount I'm inputting no longer gives me any extra benefit? Yeah. Because I'm inputting so much, I'm forgetting most of the stuff I input. Uh, There's a balance and I think it really depends on you where that balance is. But you have to be honest with yourself about uh, where the balance is and if you know deep down that right now the most important thing for you to do is to go do that painting that's on your mind then go do it stop inputting um, but if every time you go try to create something 
you struggle with perspective, you struggle with anatomy, you just keep running into the same problems over and over again, you're going to need some input to solve that those problems because your craft isn't there yet in order to create uh, efficiently. So, it depends on where you are at, you know, students need more input than professionals. I think that's my answer. Here's my thought. Ian, if you've been at this for 17 years as a professional, then you've you've got a good understanding of how it all works. And you mentioned is there a certain amount of time or percentage of time or whatever. I wouldn't go there. I wouldn't get that specific. I think that the better thing to do is what Stan was getting at. Listen to your instincts. If you are feeling dry, then you go to that rich well of resources of other people's work that fills you up. And if you are feeling like all you're doing is taking in, you've got to go out and exercise it. And that's the best analogy I can think of offhand because I've used it a lot, is that input is food. Output is exercise. It's play. <laughs> Output is poop. <laughs> well, actually, actually, well, you could look at it that way. Granted that you're doing really bad work. Or you're making just absolute sculptures. Uh, maybe. Like brilliant genius sculptures. Maybe I should change how I phrase it. I like yeah. that one. <laughs> A kid needs food and drink to supply fuel and energy. And then what does the kid want to do? Go out and play and climb trees and chase and do stuff. And at our healthiest, that ends up being balanced. When we become unhealthy, and it may be one reason why we become healthy, unhealthy is we do too much of one thing at the expense of the other. But I think, especially for you, that if you've been at it this long, that if you were to take periods of time throughout the week or the month to really assess, are you hungry for more or do you need to put more work out? You'll probably get a good insight into it. You're at least asking a good question. When you're on a roll, don't stop to analyze. When the work is coming out and coming out well, don't, don't figure, well, I've got to have different or better input. Uh, but sometimes you start to do the same things over and over. And that's where you pull back and go to great masters whom you admire, new masters, ones that you haven't paid attention to before, and see how they can inspire you. But one thing I think, though, in response to your question, since I gave you a simple answer, but for everyone else, uh, if you haven't been at it for 17 years, is that everybody thinks of the work as work. Everybody knows that producing in the studio takes energy. What they don't sometimes think about is that genuinely absorbing good influences also is work. It takes energy. It's enjoyable work. It's fun. But it is actively looking noticing what this person does with line and tone, noticing what they do with edges, noticing how they simplify and how they spread out things that are kind of chattery and kind of smooth, all of the other discoveries that you can make as your knowledge of the elements of art increases and as your familiarity with the principles of art increases. You just you you get greater appreciation the more you look and if that looking is active it becomes more practical, more, hey, I could use that in my work. Move on to the next one? Yeah, let's do another. Hey, Marshall and Stan. 
people usually say Sam and Marshall, so that is a power move if I've ever seen one. <laughs> I, I'm part of a bunch of different um, Facebook anatomy groups for um, young artists, and I notice a lot of beginners that really sexualize women in their anatomy drawings. I don't even think that it's a conscious thing that people will do, but they'll just make ridiculously sized, um, like, melon boobs, huge butts, skinny waist. And so maybe you could talk about that. But I was also thinking about, um, that got me thinking about the message that you want to send in your own art, I guess. I know that you guys talk about the craft mostly, uh, hence the name of the podcast. But um, what kind of messages would you want to give in your own artwork, or do you try to, or um, how much do you just focus on the craft as opposed to uh, the message? So thanks so much. Bye-bye. When I was a student, I cared very much about what my work said, what message it was getting across. I cared too much. I think that in the first few years, I cared more about my artwork as a vehicle for teaching, for making a point, than I should have, which is part of the reason why I became a teacher. I found that when I watch a lot of fiction movies, which I do, and I read a lot of nonfiction, Oh, it's not when I, I just read a lot of nonfiction and I watch fiction movies. But as soon as I start watching documentaries, if I go for two or three documentaries in a row, I start to get hungry for fiction because I think it's a need for balance. And I am so involved in making a point as a teacher, so involved in, in sending a message that I try never to think about that when I'm making a work of all art. I'm just trying to get the proportions accurate and see if I can do it with some sense of uh, ease and effortlessness uh, or whatever else. But I'm, I'm, my mind is not on art as message at this point. It might be a better question for an artist who is concerned with that, making statements, so to speak. Stan, where do you fall with this? I struggle with it. Um, I don't think I have a message in my art. And I, I've recently thought I needed to have one, and I've been just trying to search for one. I haven't found one. Again, going back to the book we just read, <laughs> The War of Art, um, he talked about in there that you need to focus on your craft and the, because if you focus too much on the why and the art, it can hypnotize, or not hypnotize you, it could uh, paralyze you. And I think I found that kind of to be true for me. I don't have an answer to that, but I do want to say be careful if you if you put too much pressure on yourself to to create art that is only filled with uh, some kind of life-changing message that's going to change the world, you're going to create a lot less art. Um, some art is just worth creating just because it's art and just because it's beautiful. You like how something looks, I'm gonna put it down on paper. Um, but art is also a language. You know, the visual visual art is a language. It's a form of communicating. 
And so when you communicate, you have to have some kind of message, right? <laughs> so there, there is both of those, but um, I might have a better answer for you in 10 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't have one right now, unfortunately. Um, as far as sexualizing women in art, this is a discussion where I wish there was a woman here to offer a woman's side of it as well, right? Because it's really difficult to really have a meaningful conversation about this with where it's just two guys talking. It's just us. I agree. There's no way we can make a, a, a fair analysis of the situation. Hey, real quick, this is Future Stan. We are working to bring on a female guest to talk about this. So, we will revisit this question in an upcoming episode. Now, back to messages in our art. Okay. The fact that you and I are not that concerned about it is precisely one reason why there are people who will watch this podcast and say, yeah, it's rightly called draftsmen. It's rightly called draftsmen because they are not artists. They are draftspeople. And there's a difference between artists, real <laughs> artists and draftspeople is that these guys have nothing to say in their art. Sure, that could be a fair argument. It, it, it would. I, I had my stuff in a show in Irvine that was all fine artists, but the stuff that I had in there was stuff <laughs> I did for Mad Magazine. Okay. And the kids liked it, but the newspaper article on it singled me out to say that I was the one artist in there who was not an artist. <laughs> that it was just, it was just lowbrow entertainment to this reviewer. And I remember reading it and feeling a little bit proud of that label. Oh, wow. That I didn't, I don't, I don't feel like I need to be considered an artist with a capital A. I go a long way with what Stephen Pressfield talked about. I'm not trying to be an artist. I'm trying to practice good craft, make a good piece of furniture, make a functional house, cook a good meal. And if it's art, according to the people who are up above it, looking down on it and being able to say, this is art, this isn't art. If mine doesn't get designated at art, I am happy with that. I would be much more bothered by being called incompetent or <laughs> pretentious or fake or whatever else. But I don't want to think too much in making a picture right now at this stage in my life about what it means, more about whether I, I like it. Marshall, maybe one of the book reviews we could do is on the book Kitsch by Odd, Odd Nerdrum. Have you heard of it? I uh, no, I, I know who Odd Nerdrum is, but I'm interested in the book with a title, Kitsch. I haven't read it, so I don't want to even attempt to summarize it. <laughs> um, but I think it's related to this about art and the, you know, with a capital A and this sort of thing. Yeah. Being proud to not be an artist with a capital A, I think. But I think I, maybe we should read this. This is one that's been on my list and I, I'm really excited about it. I would read that with you. You know about Robert Williams, a guy who founded Juxtapose and is quite a respected artist, lowbrow artist, very lowbrow artist in his own right. 
uh, referred to Big Daddy Ed Roth as the greatest artist of the 20th century or something like that. I haven't been okay. able to find the quote, but he's taking a guy who did hot rod art and monsters and that kind of thing, the kind of stuff I loved as a kid and calling that the great art of the 20th century. Um, and part of this, I think, is flying in the face of the highbrows. Um, it is a conversation. What is and what is not art is a conversation that interests me little to participate in. It could interest me as a, a battlefield to watch who wins the war, but it's. I also don't know how relevant it is. I think that the attitude that Patty Shayefsky had, he's a great screenwriter of the late 20th century, is just to do the work and if it's art, it'll be art. And if it isn't, it won't be. But it's going back to the Stephen Pressfield attitude. Just do the best work you can do. Try to make it come alive. See what happens. Other people will decide whether it's art. Yeah. Stan, one of the books that we did start to deal with with John Gardner's The Art of Fiction, in which he deals with those deadly sins, uh, one of which was pandering, uh, one of which was mannerism, one of which was didacticism, as I recall. Didacticism is where the art becomes propaganda, that I'm doing this specifically to get people to change their minds. And that's where the danger is. But I will recommend Spike Lee's Masterclass trailer, where he talks about having the person you're rooting for and the person you're rooting against both be right, so that it is not a piece of propaganda, it's a portrait of a battle. And Ken Burns does this also with his documentaries. He has opinions, but he does everything he can to not push one side too hard, not make the message too, too heavy-handed, so that you are, as a viewer, are left with the opportunity to think it through yourself. More questions than answers. Cool. Next one? Sure. Hey, Marshall Vandross. This is Johnny Bulldog, your landlord. If you listen to me, I'll tell you something. You get me laid on one more rent check, I swear to God, I'm going to shove your big bulbous nose right through the back end of your skull. And if you don't figure out what that looks like, have Stan Pinocchio draw you the picture. It'll be a real hoot. What is that? I know who this is. Well, I don't even understand what he said. I, I didn't fully understand what he said either, but Mike Polinsky, beloved former student, now animation professional, I love you, but I don't know what you said. <laughs> this is your landlord. Should, should we move on or do you have... I am confused. Mike is one of the only people in my life who will call me up and sing to me. And I sing to him, and we always start our conversations with a song. He's one of the only people that will dare to do that. That's part of why I love him. If you're looking for me to do that, no. No, I love you for other reasons. Okay. Hey, fellas, this is Mike Polinsky, a former Marshall Vanderbilt <laughs> survivor. I, I mean, I've got a question that I've already built up a lot of opinions on over the years, but I kind of want to hear yours. So, how much showing off is too much? How do you flaunt your skills without obnoxiously rubbing it in people's faces with your art, assuming you are humble enough not to brag about it in words? To give an example, I see so much mannerism in my chosen field of animation, especially on the feature side, that it's beginning to be a little bit of a thorn in my side. Make me laugh. 
introduced me to lovable characters I would never have thought of. But for the love of God, stop showing me how well you can draw a note call style hand turning in space. The man has been dead 33 years and y'all are still making him blush uncomfortably. Take care, Marshall. That was harsh. Wait, okay. Summarize for us, please. He's talking about mannerism. Mike, we just we just did a podcast on the war of art where this issue of showing off yeah. was a thing. And I understand that there are animators who are going to show off how they can animate instead of just entertaining and telling a story. And you and I have had conversations about this. And again, it's part of what John Gardner touched on in The Art of Fiction, that as soon as the motive is to show the audience, look at how well I do this, that's not that's not a good core motive. It can be done in little bits, as he pointed out. Sometimes we do show off, but uh, it gets in the way. It's calling attention to, mannerism is calling attention to how well we do something, rather than what we're supposed to have on our mind, which for some people may to be to get the message across, or the other that he mentioned is to entertain them. To make them laugh. It may not be art if it just entertains, but that's okay. If it makes the audience laugh, it succeeded on that on those terms. If it's a scary story and it makes the audience shudder, then it succeeded on those terms. If it's a documentary and it makes the audience wonder or enlightens them to some part of life that they didn't know about, then it's done its job. But as soon as it starts to show off, it's not doing its job. Now, I don't know. You don't seem like you're that pleased with this question. I don't know. I haven't given it much thought. My first, the first thing that comes to mind, though, is that watching people show off is entertaining. Yes, that's true. So, what, where does that leave that argument? <laughs> does it kind of just destroy the whole thing? No, no, because there are some things that are meant to be show, uh, showing off. Uh, Don Richardson used to talk about it with choices of camera angles in movies. He pointed out that the best storytelling, nobody remembers anything about camera angles because they never thought about a camera. They were just involved with these characters. However, there is one kind of movie where the camera is the star. Look at this amazing camera work that we do, and it's pleasing to be exposed to virtuoso camera work. So yeah, there is a point where the camera work does want to show off because it's it's here's an analogy, and this may not connect with everybody. In the history of classical music, there is a semi-famous composer. He was the Jimmy Page of his era. It was Paganini. This would be the early to mid-19th century. And he played violin concertos. He composed violin concertos that were so difficult to play that practically nobody could play them but him because he was the virtuoso violinist. And there are recordings from the 70s by uh, played by Salvatore Accordo that if you want to hear number one and number six, that'll give you an idea of what we're talking about. Well, there are people who say that on the echelons of classical music, he's down here low because he's showing off rather than doing what you're supposed to do with music. It never stopped me from loving those violin concertos and listening to them over and over. They really are exciting because they are 
virtuoso to hear somebody go all over the place with that violin and make sounds like that. So, no, it doesn't throw it all out, Stan. It doesn't just uh, trash the whole argument. It just shows that there is a time for showing off. But if you're supposed to be telling a story or moving a person's emotions into something other than awe and wonder at how great an artist this is, then it's better to subdue that, to restrain that. So, what, when the showing off hurts the main goal, yeah. the showing off is bad. Well put. The comparison of showing off versus entertaining, does, I don't think that that works. Because I, I think almost yeah. all examples of showing off are entertaining as a yeah. spectator. I, I, I can't think of a single example of someone showing off that isn't entertaining to watch. Whether oh, yeah. we like to watch it because we think, oh my God, what an idiot. Yeah. Or that guy's so full of himself. It's still entertaining to watch this person make an idiot out of themselves. Or, yeah, or, or pull it off, like to put your fist through uh, boards as a fighter or any kind of athletic achievement. Yeah. It's a marvelous thing to show off. Oh, that you are awesome. Yeah. The parts in football games or basketball games where the athletes start showing off a little bit, those are the most, most entertaining parts of the game. Yeah. It's like, oh, that, that's where everybody turns to the TV and they rewind. And The Gilbert and Sullivan operettas are filled with patter. And the patter is the most entertaining part of it. Patter is where you've written incredible lyrics. Uh, Stephen Sondheim does that a bit too, where he just does such incredible lyrics that all you can do is be in awe of how that person came up with lyrics like that. But I get it. If, if the athlete starts showing off so much that it then affects his, the rest of his team yes, and they start performing worse because this guy is just taking all the all the the attention and, and then they start losing games because of this yeah then the showing off is is affecting the main goal here which is to win the game here's another one we got from don richardson about actors because in modern acting which in hollywood that's any time after about 19 late 1960s one of the things that changed from classic movies to modern movies is that acting became more realistic where it really does feel like a camera is in front of a real person who does not know that a camera is there. And classic movies, you've got people doing incredible speeches and they're making gestures that seem more artificial, which is not necessarily bad, but it's more artificial. It doesn't feel like real life. As soon as you get into realistic acting, which is a special level of sophistication and subtlety, if you've got someone who puts on and starts to act artificially, it can throw it out of key because it's calling attention to, am I doing a, a tremendous performance or what? And we've been taken out of the illusion of believing that we're looking into real people's lives. And one way you know this is as soon as somebody does a performance that you feel like applauding, wow, wasn't that a great speech? Uh, and it was not meant to be the character. Uh, impressing other characters with the speech, then we have been taken out of the illusion. The dream has been broken. It's been called attention to as a dream. So, Mike, I guess the brief answer to this, I'm not even sure what your question was, uh, yeah. but you are pointing out <laughs> that there is a discrepancy between doing the job of entertaining the audience in an animation and showing that I know, like you know, that Milt Call was the greatest animator of the 20th century. And have I studied his stuff and watched me move my character just the way Milt 
call would do it. I know that that becomes a problem. It gets in the way of the audience's experience. Ah, okay, cool. Next? Yeah. Okay. Hey, Stan. Hey, Marshall. It's Jack here. Um, I have a quick question for you. So, recently my friends have been asking me to do commissions for them, and I know they're probably in the same financial situation as me, a.k.a. we're not big balling money, you know? So, um, I want to know what should I do if I want to put in the max amount of effort to please my friends because they're my homies, but uh-huh. with all this time, I feel like I'm not getting paid enough. What should I do? Thank you. Wait, did he say that they're both rolling in money? Not rolling in oh, money. Oh, not roll. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what was his name? Chad or Charik? Chad, maybe? Ch- Ch- something like that. Chad or Jad? I'm, I'm not sure. Jarek? Charik? Jared? 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 Maybe. Or Charit. It's Jack here. <laughs> Let's call him Chad. Whatever your name is, I love you for your spirit of wanting to do well by the people that you are close to. And I trust that you will be a good comrade to them. But there does come a point where you, that, that spirit of generosity can be exploited by people. And Stan, I don't know. You, you might answer this better than I'm going to answer it. I, Probably. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Go, well, you were going to ask me something, right? I was going to ask you how you would answer this because the, the tension of – this is a tension between family and work, isn't it? Because your family are your friends. Who, yeah, yeah. They want you to do stuff for them, but then you only have so much energy and you've got to do stuff to make your living and finding creative solutions to that, like I'll do it for you for one year and we're going to work on this together to where I'm going to get up good enough to where I'm going to leave the family, that you're you're having me serve you and then I'm going to leave the family to have a real career and that means I won't be able to do anything for you for the next two or three years and if I make this much money, then I'll, I'll fund our dinners. I, I don't know. I don't know how to handle this. I've had a lot of experience with this. Okay, tell us. <laughs> um, and I think that uh, <laughs> I'm gonna what, guess what I'm gonna say. <laughs> you're gonna say I know what you're gonna say. I can predict the future. It depends. Yeah, it depends. But I think that there's a time for both. When I was young, friends and family were my only clients. Nobody's going to hire a 14-year-old to do <laughs> their their family portraits <laughs> except my parents' friends. Right? Come on. So, it depends on your situation. If that if they're your only choice and getting paid less than what you think you are worth is the only thing that you are going to get paid right now because you don't have any other clients, then I think, yes, you take that job and you you treat it as practice with a little bit of money attached to it. Um, unless you're just not excited about doing it. If, it's, if they're asking you to do something that doesn't um, align with what you already want to do, then you could say no to that because it's practice 
it's the wrong practice. You're not practicing the thing that you want to practice. Um, and then you're just doing it for them. And if you really love them enough, sure, go ahead, do it for them. Make it as a gift or something. Um, but eventually, you're going to have to start saying no more and more and more. Because going back to the War of Art, <laughs> we just read it. It's on our mind. I'm sorry, but it does kind of cover a lot of this stuff. It's resistance, man. <laughs> it's, it's war, baby. You might use it as an excuse to not do that thing that's probably harder to do that you know you really should be doing right now. That, that project that you've been trying to finish for the past two years and you're really stuck on it. Hey, I'll just take this break and do this thing for my friend right now. You're putting it off. Go do that thing that's really hard to do, but you know is more meaningful. You know, once I got to the point where I had my own projects going on, I was building my own companies, I had my own paintings I wanted to make, um, a lot of friends and family would, would look at me as like, oh, he's the artist, he could just whip something out real quick. And, and, and they would come to me with these things not realizing what they're actually asking me to do, which is to, to say no to that thing that I, I feel is really important to provide them with this charity. Um, and I would have to politely explain to them that this would take me away from all the other things that I don't have time to do that I really want to do. <laughs> that I'm already saying no to things that are really important to me because I have too many important things to do and I don't have enough time. And so, it's not personal that I'm saying no to them. It's that this is my job, this is the way I make a living um, and I have to do the things that are going to grow my career, all that stuff. So, that, that, that was what I, what I was doing. <laughs> that makes sense. But hey, here's here's another thing about it. I know I know what you're feeling because I right now I'm saying no to more people than I've ever said no to in years because it's just too many things to do. I can't get my work done if I say yes to everybody. But there's one good thing about it. I'm working right now with people of choice. Almost everything I'm doing, I'm working with people I want to hang out with. So if these are your friends that you want to hang out with, if they're your life friends, one thing you can do is get a whiteboard in front of you and say, here's what I want to do. Here's my goal. And then they put on there what their goal is also. And you look at these things and say, how can anything I could do for you or anything you could do for me take us to our goals? And in working on that together, you can see which ones of your friends really are. On your side, are they really pulling for you? Are they trying to get you there? Are they going to try to yank you to do something that's going to benefit them without considering whether it benefits you? But when you find, hey, I got an idea that could benefit me and you, and then you listen to it and you say, yeah, that could benefit me, and then you start to find ways that you can be uh, travelers together. I've seen this happen even in the last year with some students that I'm excited about where one has an idea. And another one isn't really involved in that idea until they say, but I have this and I could help you with that. And my cousin's a lawyer and we need a lawyer in this. And this other person knows how to do this. And so, 
teams start to teams of friends start to unite around common goals and where they don't unite or where someone has energy that they don't have everybody else's uh, good at heart then you know that's not one of my real friends but i wish the best for you and i hope that you prosper and that your friends prosper along with you yeah and keep in mind every time you say yes you're bringing more of those requests to you because your friends will hear that oh you just did that portrait for for her well hey it, then, then they get an idea and say oh i want i want to i want to get one too and and it just spreads throughout all your friends as a thing that you do for people um which if i mean if if you like doing it go ahead there's nothing wrong with it you just have to decide if if you really do want to or not um and also when you start saying no that also has an effect. It, it brings less of those requests towards you. Eventually, my parents just started saying no to their friends. They didn't <laughs> even tell me about it because they know I'm going to say no. <laughs> they were sparing the yeah. extra energy to, yeah. They're just we're, like, we're just, no, no. That, don't even not, let them in the door. Not do it. <laughs> yeah. So. Okay. It's a good question though. And it, I also know that it comes from, it comes from experience that that you'll you'll work it out I think. You got a great heart, but you may be that your your big issue may be boundaries. And boundaries are a way to test friendships to see whether they're really friendships. If you set boundaries and they are reasonable boundaries that it can be clear even if it isn't clear that I'm setting this boundary to protect myself even if that isn't clear to them, you still set the boundaries. But ideally, if they're really friends, look, I get exhausted when I'm trying to do this much help me out here. I can't do that for you. And if they are with you, they'll say, yeah, yeah. And then you've got even a stronger bond of looking out for each other. You want to conclude it? Well, thank you for your questions. And hopefully there's something in here useful to you. Thank you guys for listening. We appreciate you. Thank you for your questions. And if you do want to ask a question, you could leave us a voicemail. The phone number is at the in the description. Or if you're in some, you know, another country, not in the United States, you could just send us uh, an MP3 or a WAV file of your voice to support at proca.com. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. See y'all.